everyone. Hello to the very exciting AXIS Advanced Cultural Studies Institute of Sweden here in Norrköping. It's Toby Miller for the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I have with me two very distinguished members of AXIS who are also involved in the journal Culture Unbound. And we're hoping to talk about both those things today. Guys, would you introduce yourselves, please? Noana first. My name is Johanna Berlin, and I'm a research coordinator at AXIS. The research coordinator at Axis, and next to her is yes, one of yesterday's superstars. Yes, my name is Martin Fredriksson. I'm uh, I'm the editor of Culture and Bound, which is a journal owned by Axis. Axis, right. So why don't we start with with what Axis is, Joanna? Maybe we could start with you. And when you say research coordinator, mm. what's the story? <laughs> the story. Um, the story of Axis began, I think, some twelve years ago. And it was before my time, so um, I don't know everything about that. Sure. Uh, but it, it's a center, uh, it's, it's a really small center in a way. Mm. Um, and we don't do any research of our own, uh, but it's rather to coordinate uh, the resources in cultural research in Sweden. There's a lot of really small research environments, and access is a way to, to create more of a research environment nationally. Mm. Okay, so does that mean you're looking for grants that you can manage in a sense? No, we're looking for grants to do events that will bring people together. Okay, great, great. Um, now, here's a question I'm going to ask Johan Fornes. Is that how I pronounce his name, by yes. the way? More or less. More or less, yeah, but I mean, help me out here. Don't just Fornes. tell me. Fornes. Yes. Fornes. Johan Fornes. Yes. Great, I'm going to try that one <laughs> on him on Friday. I'm going to be talking to him about some of its origins, but mm. in most countries... When you set yourself up as the national something or other mm. and to coordinate others, you run into all kinds of difficulties when it comes to turf wars, as they're sometimes called. How does the rest of Sweden feel about being organized by you, Johanna? Mm. I, know, I know how one Swedish citizen feels. That's Erland, your son, <laughs> who has positioned himself by the window. Yeah. Um, <laughs> access as a board with members from all Swedish universities. Ah, great. So that's one way to manage yeah. this. But I also think since we're not doing any research of our own, it's a little bit less threatening maybe. To you're, not, you're not taking over what no. they want to do. Yeah. Yes, you're providing a truly coordinating yeah. service. Got it. Okay, I've asked my undiplomatic question. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about some of the conferences that you've been involved in while you've been helping mm -hmm. coordinate. Yeah, so I've accessed every second year since... 2005 organized a, a big um, cultural studies conference um, and it's been taking place here in Norrköping and we're organizing the sixth in, in June and I'll be working on probably my third as the yeah, coordinator of mm. the conference and Martin also been involved in a few of them. Yeah. The same number? More or less the same yeah. number, yeah. And mm. um, so these conferences are bringing together uh, a lot of research is mainly from Sweden, but not only. And two of the conferences has been Swedish language only, so they have, of course, been more national in focus. And two were English language only. But the last two conferences, we've decided to have them bilingual. So you, we have two working languages, Swedish and English. Mm -hmm. And do you involve people much from other Nordic countries? Unfortunately not. There's something we're, we're working on try to get a bigger Nordic presence mm. this year. But it's, it's a bit national, the framework, yeah. unfortunately. 
because I think there would be great benefits of working more on the Nordic, Nordic level. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe we could, uh, we'll move around a bit, but we could talk about some of the projects that uh, you guys are involved in. Um, and let's start with the journal, uh, Culture Unbound, which is in a way what brings us all together now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, C Culture Unbound was formed in 2009. So we just, in June 2009, uh, which means that, that uh, we've recently celebrated our uh, five year anniversary. anniversary. Uh, and as you say, that's partly what, what brings us together here because we had had the celebratory workshop that last week. Mm. Uh, Culture Unbound is it's an open access peer reviewed research journal mm. uh, focusing on on you could say interdisciplinary cultural research. It's when we started it, it was a way to sort of to to in a way test the ground and see see see. Uh, See where the gaps are. Sort of what what, what to 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 uh, to start a journal that that can can attract uh, emerging fields that aren't really don't really fit in in disciplinary journals. In mm. And it's not just cultural studies, is it? No, it's definitely not just cultural studies. Uh, it's cultural research in a much broader sense. Mm. Mm. So how would you guys distinguish these two things? You know, when you say we're the Advanced Cultural Studies Institute of Sweden mm. and you say our journal cultural, Culture Unbound is not a cultural studies journal, mm. it's much broader. Explain to me. Yeah, we're also trying to be a lot broader in access as well. And I think the term cultural studies actually puts off a lot of people in Sweden. They will say that that's not for me, that's something different. And I don't think there are any department in Sweden defining itself as cultural studies. Um, so you need to rename yourselves ACRIC. Yeah, we should. Yeah, It would be good and, and it would be less um, confusion with the Essex brand. Yeah, yeah. Because if, if you yeah. Google Axis, you get a lot of hits for Essex. The shoe. Yeah, yeah. the shoe. Mm. Yeah, I found that. When I was trying to find out the address, yeah. I kept getting ASICs. Yeah. Um, so, Advanced Cultural Research Institute of Sweden, ACRIS. ACRIS sounds like Lacris. sort of minor Shakespearean yeah, yeah. figure, or maybe it's, I don't know, it could be a laxative also. I'm not <laughs> sure. Like it could be. Which is licorice in Swedish. Oh, licorice. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's it perfect. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, this is in order to get away from this Anglo hegemony, yeah. that could be a very important contribution. Yeah. But um, before we. Before I hear from Martin about this, could I just ask you, Johanna, when you said that there was some negativity in Sweden towards cultural studies, mm. could you expand on that a wee bit? Um, I think uh, people perceive it as a very narrow research tradition. Mm. And also I think the traditional disciplines in Sweden have been quite strong, and cultural studies at least began as a kind of interdisciplinary effort. Um, but, but I think it's perceived as, as a quite of a narrow. Narrow meaning yeah. what? What are its avenues? Would you say Martin, popular you culture? Popular, the popular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. popular yeah. cultural aspect. Yeah. I yeah. think people would yeah. first yeah. and foremost associate with. So it's studies. not not the kind of criticism that you get in a lot of other countries, which is that this isn't scholarship. It's it's not properly done. There are no proper methods. It's more that it's a, it's narrow. I, th I think people think of think of Birmingham 
mm. think of cultural studies as British cultural studies, as Williams, and don't really identify with that. That well, that's the 80s, maybe the 90s, but it's sort of. So it's also a bit out of date. Yeah. So it's narrow and a bit ancient. Yeah. It sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder I identify with cultural studies now. I've never understood why before, but finally I come here to more shopping. I sit in a beautiful postmodern room where I can see all the things that are bringing power and light and warmth to me and liquid above me as I put my head back, lolling back in the chair, and I discover my own biography and physique. Mm. So narrowness, yeah. Yeah. out of dateness, and also the fact that it is very tightly identified with, with the Birmingham Centre yeah. for Contemporary Cultural Studies. So that's, I think that's why, for instance, the, the English translation for this department that we're at, that we're working at, is the Department for Culture Studies, not Cultural Studies which is a way to say that we are studying culture, but we're not doing cultural studies, as in sort of the branded kind of mm, cultural mm, studies. Mm. Very interesting. And does that describe more accurately Culture Unbound as a journal, would you yes. say? Probably, probably, right, yeah. Right. Because it is, it is studies of culture, but it doesn't have to be cultural studies in the sense of British cultural studies. Mm, we, I mm. mean, you can, we, have, we have a lot of people doing cultural economics, towards more traditional humanities uh, but it has to be somehow it has to it has to cater to people beyond those disciplines yeah but it's not a, not a cultural studies yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no understood that's very very interesting I feel as though this is one of these cases where the more venerable disciplines have outlasted cultural studies and actually have regenerated and perhaps are now almost youthful in their energy because they have, in so many instances, bought into interdisciplinarity and reformed themselves. I mean, um, Johanna, you and I were talking about anthropology the other day and it's different traditions, and I'm very much a person who understands anthropology in a US sense of the four fields, mm -hmm. cultural anthropology, linguistic, physical, and archaeology, whereas that's really only one country that thinks of anthropology mm -hmm. in that way, as far as I know. Um, but certainly in that four fields tradition, there has been a very vigorous critique within cultural anthropology especially of many of the norms of the discipline. Oh, and, and, and those critiques actually predate cultural studies. And, you know, I think a lot of anthropologists feel harshly done by when they're attacked by cultural studies people who nevertheless wish to use ethnography without knowing how to do it. Mm. And that's the critique of cultural studies within anthropology, of course, <laughs> that is not properly done in its sort of lightweight. <laughs> sure, and I think the same critique's made of sociology. Mm. Sociology's form of ethnography is deemed to mm. be short-term, mm. very site-specific, but without going to the real depths of a site. Mm. Yeah. Is that fair enough? Yeah. I don't know if it's a fair critique, but that's definitely the critique. As a version. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm not asking you guys to subscribe to these critiques. You're in difficult positions in that you're representing an institution and a mm. journal today, and you're not just representing yourselves. So I'm not associating you with these views. I'm just wanting to try to understand what the views are. Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm. Because I think there are clues here not only about what's going on in Sweden, but what's going on in other countries that I, where I encounter this kind of perspective. It's mm. actually not dissimilar to what I've found in, in part in uh, Mexico, uh, in Chile, um, and in bits of the United States, for example, and certainly in bits of France as well. So I, I do think it may be a wider tendency, and it's not necessarily this time about disciplines being hidebound and reactionary. It may be that actually they've 
revise themselves somewhat mm -hmm. and are going on to do new things and maybe cultural studies isn't. Yeah. I think access has an important role in that it can bring together researchers who are based on a traditional department but who has an interdisciplinary interest. So. so really what you're interested in probably is interdisciplinarity in the cultural field. Is that the big contribution you think AXIS makes now? No, it could be. Could be, yeah. But I think the, the main contribution is providing like, meeting places for people who might be quite alone in their home department. Yeah, people who don't quite fit within the conventional norms of academic administration, mm. but would have common cause and things to talk about. Mm. Or sometimes people who do fit, but just want new Perspectives. New challenges, new opportunities. Yeah. yeah, I think that's very, very exciting. I really do. Especially, as you know, having just said that cultural studies may have had its day, if we try to reimagine it in a really, really different frame. Uh, I'm certainly not somebody who thinks cultural studies begins with the UK. I think it's a significant player. But really, in the United States, I'd take it back to Henry James. In France, I'd take it back to Durkheim. Uh, in Latin America, you know, to the earlier than Durkheim, you know, and I just think that a lot of that alternative genealogy is missing from the received version. And if we can regenerate the genealogy, we can help to regenerate actually what cultural studies itself perhaps does. So let's talk about the five years, if we could, of Culture Unbound, some of the things that it's done and some of the challenges it's confronting. It's got a lot of theme issues. Yeah. And they've been on some really interesting topics. I wonder if you could just ruminate on the theme issue for a moment, Martin, perhaps, and, and, well, and the fields that it's yeah. covered. Well, the fun thing of doing theme issues in an interdisciplinary journal is that it's, it's in, in one sense, it's, it's, a, it's a testing round. You sort mm. of throw out, throw out sort of a, you get a lot of, lot of different suggestions that somehow reflects the field and reflects what's happening now. I, I can see in the theme issues that we have that they tend to reflect reflect emerging fields. Uh, as I mentioned before, we've had over the five year, past five years, we've had several issues in different way relating to cultural economics, cultural labor, work and emotion, those kind of issues that are emerging in, 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 uh, in the interfaces between traditional cultural studies or cultural research and economics are often emerging at, at uh, business schools for instance or around business schools or between business critical schools. management yeah. studies yeah, exactly. is a fasinating like area yeah. isn't it yeah. really fascinating yeah. I think. so that's one example of all yeah. the areas that, that that we tend to that we can pick up for instance yeah it's very very in, lots of interesting things are happening there there is sort of they, they don't really really have any forums yet so so I think we're and that's what one part of, of uh, cultural bound is to be a forum for those hot topics. They're really, mm. really sort of emerging topics that are, don't have those forms yet. Mm. To present, be, maybe a, be, be a step ahead of, of the discipline in general, so mm. in that sense, that mm. you pick up those things. Yeah, yeah, sure. And you've mentioned labor issues and economic issues more broadly. What do you think are some of the things that the journal? or not just Culture Unbound, but journals and publishing in general need to address in the future that they're not addressing? What are some of the big topics for the future? And this is a question for both of you, really. I'm, interested, I'm asking this in part because I'm aware that you're involved together somewhat in a future research project that sounds really interesting mm -hmm. to me. 
mm. um, that I think is one of the coming areas. Yeah, you're thinking of the Commons project. I'm thinking of the Commons project and also, I mean, how issues of the Commons, of private and public, if you like, relate to land use mm. and relate to issues like mining, which mm. I know is an important one mm. for you guys, because it really seems to me that the use of natural resources is something that cultural studies has simply failed yeah. to yeah. engage. Yeah. You know, there's some sort of environmental mm. critique at a textual mm. analytic level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Right? Uh, we don't like the way that the environment is represented in cinema mm. or the press. Mm. But that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. So we still keep on studying studying texts. We still keep on, keep on, keep on studying representations. It's the same object. Yeah. It's just that what fills it up yeah. Yeah. varies. And the same techniques tend to be used mm. for me. Mm. So I wonder about the sorts of techniques that you're hoping to use in your new project, for example. Well, I mean, that, that's a different question. I was thinking about your earlier question. Yeah, sure. And I think that's fine. A big challenge for academic publishing is that it takes such a long time. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would be great if you could develop ways to get out your research quicker, because then it can make a bigger difference when the mm. topics are still hot mm. and not coming out as an afterthought mm. like five years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's a question academia should address. So speed, actually. Yeah, speed. speed. Yeah. It yeah. takes such a long time. And in a way, I mean, it's necessary. I mean, as I said, I have my background in social anthropology and we're all into long-term field work and that mm. kind of thing. It takes a lot of time. But maybe it takes too much time. Maybe it doesn't mm. have to take that yes. much time. Yes. yes, I agree. We have to do something about the peer review processes, basically. Mm. We have to sort of find new ways to do that that are more efficient and also more rewarding for the people who do it. Well, my experience of this has been that sometimes when you have, and we've talked about this in terms of the journal, a core group mm. of people who are located in the same city, mm. who meet and who talk about the manuscripts, that can be really dynamic and interesting. Mm. Um, it doesn't always give the kind of feedback that authors want. It doesn't always involve comprehensive expertise in a domain, but it can be quick. Yeah. And it can also lead to really interesting debates. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the weaknesses here is that the peer review system is fundamentally flawed in the amount of time it takes, in the amount of labor it involves, and the return that is given to those who, who do the work. You know, as a journal editor and as a reviewer of manuscripts, time is the biggest problem. I don't have the time to chase people, to do reviews, and I don't have the time to do the reviews as quickly as I should. I'm often being chased down by editors. Mm. We need your review. Yeah. I'm really one of the problem yeah. people here, and, and so are many. I'm, I'm the one who are chasing you. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you're running. <laughs> but, and I feel, bad, I feel terrible about that, mm. you know, because I never say no. Yeah. I always say yes because I think one should as part of a responsibility. But at any one time I'm doing maybe 20 or 30 of these things. And I feel terrible yeah. about chasing you because I know, know what you're doing. <laughs> but the fact is, it, it is really important that it be done, but there's got to be something different about it. Uh, you know, I mentioned the other day the American Economics Association pays people $100 for reviewing for their journals. I'm not suggesting you guys should do that at all. But given that there are 
new publishing models of subvention that involve universities providing funding and grant givers providing funding to scholars to get their work published. Maybe some of that could go not just into the publishing process, but into the reviewing process. Yeah. And that way you could even say to people, you know, if we get this in, like a, like a book publisher does, mm. if we get this in the next four weeks, we'll give you 50 pounds. Yeah. Or we'll give you something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that might make a difference. Yeah. So might trying to get a group of people here in North Shopping mm. uh, together who will go through the manuscripts as a first run. Mm and really make some comments yeah. quickly, and it's an interesting collective process, and then send them out to peer reviewers and say, here are our comments, what do you think? And then it's a less onerous task for the peer reviewers. Mm. Look, it's a new, I, I just thought of it then, it may not work, but I'm trying to respond to what you're saying, Johanna, about making this happen faster. Mm. Um, the other thing would be in terms of things like social anthropology and field work, notes from the field. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Finding ways of publishing what is not as polished product. Mm. Mm. This is what I did today. Mm. These are the people I met. Yeah. This is what I think it needs. Mm. Mm. That can be more valuable, particularly yeah. to somebody who's learning how to do the craft, mm. yeah. than the full deal. You yeah. know, hence yeah. our interest in Malinowski's diaries, even yeah. if they do disappoint us. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we have promised as part of our research project to keep an extensive web page mm. and a blog for yeah. the project as a way to disseminate while it's still going on. Yeah. That's great. Mm. And that means your field work is also constantly being reviewed mm. by you mm. yeah. because your notes are yeah. being seen by yeah. others. And yeah. I, I, I was using a blog when I did my PhD research and I had immense use for it when I was writing it up because yeah. I had already reflected on a lot of issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But could, still fresh. could you tell us a bit, just might be a good time to mention something about your PhD research, actually, which is really interesting. <laughs> well, it's a bit off but topic, it's, isn't it's, it? It's, it's, <laughs> but it's still interesting. It's about yeah. stand-up comedy during the, second, during the siege of Leningrad. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, it's about... Stalingrad, sorry. It's Leningrad, actually. <laughs> okay, better. Uh, it's, a, it's about um, the search for missing soldiers from the Second World War in Russia today. There's about five million MIAs still on missing the in action. Yeah, and there's a volunteer movement that are looking for the remains of these soldiers in order to identify and bury them. So I did field work with one such volunteer group uh, based in Saint Petersburg. What is now called Saint Petersburg yeah. again? Yeah, which was Leningrad by then. So yeah. it's a bit confusing. <laughs> and very moving, I imagine, this work. It was, yes. What, I mean, just very quickly, I know we're not supposed to be dwelling on this too much, but it'd be nice to, for people to learn about it. What were some of the main things you encountered amongst these groups, or the group in particular you were studying? In, in what terms? Yeah. Well, what was interesting or surprising or different or focused about them? Well, a lot of things were <laughs> interesting. I think what, what got me interested in the first place was when I realized how important the war still is to people in Russia today. Mm. Since Sweden did not take part in the Second World War, I had never thought much about it before I came to Russia. And then I realized this is very much still alive and it's still very important. Mm. Yeah. So that was got me interested from the first part. And then, of course, when I started to do field work out in these excavations, and I went with this group and all the field trips and so on. I mean, of course, it's very moving when you start to uh, uncover human remains and mm. that kind mm. of thing. So yeah. that was very moving, of course. and and. You get a different, I mean, numbers is one thing, but when you go out to the battlefield and you realize the extent of the destruction, that's 
was of course very moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a foundational experience for at least three, at least four countries in the war. I mm. think. I think Japan, the former Soviet Union, um, the well, let's, how many countries do we include? I mean, the Chinese were occupied. The British and the American, North Americans use it as their justification for mm. enslaving and killing millions of people since. Mm. It's, the Russians use it as their justification for the same thing. Mm. Obviously, for the Germans, it's about forgetting, letting go, accepting guilt, all kinds of things. But it's the foundational incident of the 20th century, I think, for the most important countries of that period and of today, actually. That's the extraordinary thing about it. It's the real axis around which things turn. Mm. So, anyway, Martin, yes, I think you were going to say something when I insisted that we talk about stand-up comedy and <laughs> what I call Stalingrad. <laughs> I don't really have much to add to that. <laughs> you, what, your special subject stand for today's comedy. quiz is stand-up comedy in Stalingrad during the Second World War. And you say you've got nothing to contribute? Yeah, well, you know, she's the hardcore anthropologist. You know. I do, I do, I, I, I sit at cafes and sit coffee and interview people. You sit in cafes and interview people online? Yeah, no, in person. In person? I'm, well, that's I'm very she, bold. She's the one who sort of... Live in a Russian pub. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think anthropologists are less shy and people trained in textual analysis are shy? No, I'm, I'm quite difference? shy. Actually. You're shy. So I have to constantly combat that mm. to be able to do field work. Well, you know, my friend Faye Ginsburg says that people study what they're not good at. Mm. Economists can't run businesses. Literary critics can't write novels. Mm. Anthropologists are afraid of large groups of new people. <laughs> Psychologists love rats, but are frightened of people. Accountants are no good with numbers. You know, this is her sort of world theory of knowledge. Could be. Yeah. I mean, it's a really continuation of the doctor's wife die young and so on. That kind of That's because of all the, the surgery they have to have on their faces and bodies, I think, in order to fit the fantasies of their brutal patriarchal husbands. Um, so, well... Getting back to my question about where culture unbound might go, um, themes are probably still the areas to go in your suggesting. I guess I'm thinking it'd be really great to have more to do with scientists, that this is the, the great task. Given the influence of people like Bruno Latour and social studies of knowledge and science and technology studies in so much of the cultural field, and given that what's interesting about Latour in many ways comes from intersections with scientists, I think it'd be great to get more and more scientists actually involved. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just chatting to a, one of the grad students here about C.P. Snow and the two cultures mm -hmm. yeah. and how telling a critique that bifurcation still is in many ways. And mm -hmm. I think that's the, the great frontier. And, of course, it's a good defensive frontier because it enables cultural people to get on board with people who are more powerful in universities and funding agencies. Anyway, there's my little rant. Now, to finish off, could we talk for a moment about the Commons project and the mining and so on? Would that be all right? Sure. About what you're going to be doing? Because I think that will interest listeners a great deal. Should you start? So, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, tell us about mining in Sweden today as opposed to yesterday. And tell us about ideas of the commons and how they might be relevant to this. And tell us about indigenous people and their struggles for land use in Sweden today. How's that as okay. a start? 
centimeters, not the small. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just one sentence answers yeah. in each case. And Seriously. mining has a long history in Sweden, of course. And I mean, iron has been one of the foundations of the Swedish economy. Uh, so there are some really big mines that are very important. And most of the mines are in northern Sweden. Uh, I guess the most famous one is in uh, Kiruna which is now making that they have to move the entire city of Kiruna because the mine is making the ground collapse. And it's been surprisingly uncontroversial because people accept sort of the necess necessity of the mine. Of course, some people are not very happy, but you would imagine that if <laughs> the town is collapsing, it would be a big outcry. Uh, so I think it's been surprisingly little controversy around this. What is making the town collapse? Um, the, the mine. So it's undermining it, literally. <laughs> it's, it's undermined. Literally. Yeah. yeah. So literally, the earth is simply collapsing yeah. because of the mining going on so close to the town. Mm. Okay. Uh, so they have to move the entire town. Uh, I guess they've started. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The mm -hmm. process. Um, <clears throat> But they're also opening new mines, and the Swedish uh, government apparently has a very generous policy towards mining and charges relatively little for the prospective companies to come here mm -hmm. to mine. So Sweden has been quite an attractive country for mine operators. And in our project, we have included a case which is called Kallak or Gallok in Sami language which has been a great controversy and there isn't a mine there yet but it's been prospective mining and it's been very controversial because it is on uh, traditional indigenous land. And the Sami are indigenous people of Sweden and Norway and Finland and, and Russia. Finland and Russia and uh, they Historically, what has been their attitude to mining and so on? I think historically, they haven't really been allowed to have an attitude. So I think the big controversies now is, of course, because the greater potential of taking action for minorities now compared to earlier times. I think that's one explanation. Great there... attention is paid to yeah. these kind of issues today. Do the Sami have land rights? Uh, Yes, but they have use rights. They don't use have rights. ownership rights. So what they can, what does that mean? They have first choice of leasing oh. the land mm. to miners. No, um, the Samis are well, not all of them are that, but traditionally they're very associated with reindeer herding. Right. And this requires vast areas. Yeah. And yeah. they don't own these areas. The, the grazing. Right, right, areas. right. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So, in other words, if an area is important for reindeer grazing, yeah, and but they might not be the owners of that area. They might not be the, area, the owners, but what they would have to be paid a tariff by the miners if they agreed to forego their first use rights and hand them over to mining. Is that what it would be? I'm not sure about that. Actually, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure if they get compensated. Because they're not owners, but they would have. They could some say. I mean, they must have get some kind of compensation. Right. And are anthropologists relevant here? Do they, do they have to agree? Yes, you know, we've done studies, and no. this really is where they heard the reindeer. No, no so they... it's, it's quite different from from Australia. Yeah, for yeah. Uh, but maybe 
it's, I think these controversies are quite new. So maybe we are going in that, in that direction. That, that Who direction. knows? That's yeah. fascinating. Okay. It's, it's, it's a really tricky question also because on the one hand you have Samis, for instance, people who use the land. Mm. You know, not only Samis, people in general that yeah. have, have sort of different rights to use the land. On the other hand, you have, in some cases, landowners. On the third hand, you have the mining industry because the landowners doesn't, don't own what's below the ground. Mm. And the landowners only own the sort of the top layer. I don't know how far yeah. it goes, I don't know like either. one meter or something like that. Yeah. So, so if a mining, com mining company, the state could still se sell mining rights to a mining company on the land that someone owns. Yep. Which is a tricky thing. I, yeah. Is so there, there a is there there. doctrine of eminent domain in Sweden? Uh, eminent domain is a doctrine that's very important in Anglo world. Mm. Uh, which says that residually the state has sovereignty over everything. Mm. And so when there is a greater public good as yeah. defined mm. by the state, yeah. it can mm. simply resume all territory. Yes. Mm. So this is how yeah. cities get rid yeah. of people's homes they've owned yeah, for, for right. 17 so generations in order to build yeah. a mall, yeah. Yeah. for the yeah. developer to build a mall. Yeah. 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 They used that a lot in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, Right, it's not right. that popular today to use it, but I guess it's probably used to occasionally. Some environmentalists, I think it was, tried to use it, or were they right-wingers? I forget who they were. They tried to use it against a member of the Supreme Court of the United States for his holiday home oh, really? <laughs> because they didn't like some decision he'd taken. I can't remember whether it was the left or the right that attacked him. He was a liberal judge. Mm -hmm. But, of course, surprise, surprise, <laughs> they didn't win. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is really a growing area where law and applied technology and anthropology and traditional use and knowledge are all circling one another along with corporations and governments. Yeah? yeah. Still trying to work out how to understand it all. Is that right? Yeah, and the core of it is basically the question what is property and how is, how yeah. is property made? Yeah. yeah, sure. And so that's where the ideas of the commons mm. come in. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Exactly. So many of us would say that one of the most influential academic articles of all time is Garrett Hardin's 1968 article, The Tragedy, yeah. of, the the tragedy of the Commons. Yes. You're shaking your heads and smiling when I mention that awful citation. Yeah. Well, it's backdrop to, to the discussion. I mean, it's, it's severely outdated, but it's still a backdrop to many of the discussions about Commons. But I guess it's also sort of I think it's also sort of uh, something that that the, the re more 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 balanced research about the commons through the 80s and 90s has sort of derived from argued against in a sense. It's, it is important in that way. Maybe we should tell people what it is in case anybody's shaking their head because they don't know. Yeah. So this was in nature, wasn't it, or science, yes, or one of those one, one, of, them, yeah. one of those things yeah. where true where real truth appears, mm. yeah. even more than in culture unbound, perhaps. Mm. <laughs> Possibly. Oh, no, the executive editor didn't like that talk. You could see it in his face. And basically what it's saying is the whole idea of the commons, because it doesn't allow the idea of circling off land for private development, ends up not allowing for the great benefits and good that come from yeah, and development and that people would try to exploit it to their own personal use. To, the, to their own personal use. And this is the argument that a magazine like The Economist, which calls itself a newspaper, makes about problems with 
individual property ownership in China, saying that you know the peasant class will be improved if they can, in all honesty, take advantage of these commons that they're not allowed to own, which in fact are taken advantage of by corrupt bureaucrats mm. and state-managed enterprises anyway, mm. right? That this is yeah. what we need. Yeah. But I mean, the criticism to Harding within the commons tradition is usually twofold. I mean, first of all, uh, the commons are usually not a free-for-all to use resource. It's often quite limited who mm. has the right to use it and in what way. So it's often regulated. And his example builds on the idea of an unregulated space. Uh, but also, that you must understand it. I mean, for the argument to make sense, you have to consider the relationship between the private cows that are supposed to do the overgrazing and yep. the common resource, which he sort of neglects yep. in the discussion. Yep. Absolutely. But it's amazing. That, that piece came out 46 years ago. We were talking yesterday about the death of the author and what is an author came out in 68 and 69, and people often associate that period with revolution, but really there were these several pieces of writing that were revolutionary in their own ways. Mm. I think, and more influential than hippies will ever be, mm. and certainly the tragedy of the commons is one of those. Mm. That's actually the Hardin Rescue Service <laughs> <laughs> coming to retrieve his magnificent work from our appalling critiques. It is only about two pages long, isn't it, actually, that thing? I mean, like all those articles in mm, Nature and short, Science. Yeah. Yeah. Brevity. Perhaps yeah. this is the next... Yeah, yeah I mean, that's also an issue, issue for, for academic publishing. It's true. Mm. Brevity or length. Mm. Yeah. Without yeah. any costs and benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we go on and on and on and on? And that's Mrs. Hardin <laughs> following up on the immediate task force that's come to her husband's rescue. And that's the baby Hardins. <laughs> Remarkably, Erland seems to have slept through that. I think he's immune to the notion of the tragedy of the commons, mm. as exhibited in Swedish klaxons. So you're at the beginning of this research. What are you actually going to do physically? Well... You're going to go there. Yeah. No. To go there. Yeah. To the mines. To the mines. In winter. N not necessarily. Let me guess. I, I was just thinking, <laughs> just by chance, well, you're not going to go there in February. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there is. There, I could go there in February. I don't mind. <laughs> I mean, there, we, we do have a field study in, in Australia. Yeah. Um, so. You have a student studying in Australia. No, no. I mean, a field study in Australia because that's warmer. No, because it's, it's long, an interesting compassion. Yeah, and of course, iron ore is so important there. Yeah. yeah. And there are lots of controversies between, between mining companies and indigenous people. And so forth. Yeah, sure. And sure. it's a good place to go in February. I don't think, actually, it might not be such a good place to go in February if it's outback Australia. That's true. But <laughs> <laughs> lots of flies. <laughs> well, I was, t I was telling you the other day, wasn't I? Was, was it? No, somebody else I was telling the story about how I worked for a U.S. merchant bank in Australia 35 years ago. And... Oh. When our advisory board was coming to Australia for its annual meeting, one of the things, because in those days foreign banks didn't have licenses to operate in Australia unless they got there before Federation. So mm -hmm. a New Zealand bank and a French bank could, but nobody else could. So we wanted more dispensation from our Asia-Pacific headquarters, which was in Hong Kong, to lend more money without their approval. So we wanted the big guns from New York to approve this. 
amongst the many innovations we had to win their hearts was that the president of the bank, when his plane touched down at Sydney Airport, was to be greeted, we hoped, by a kangaroo from Taronga Park Zoo, which would go out on the tarmac and put out its paw to greet him as he came down the gangway. Taronga Park Zoo didn't approve of this. But what we were able to do was go up to a major iron ore part of Australia and crop dust for three days before an outdoor barbecue for the International Committee to make sure that there would be no living creature coming anywhere near them. Mm. We didn't want their steak and sausages affected by flies. Mm. So there are lots of interesting things to study out there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I sure. can tell you. But the project is not only about mining, it's also about uh, traditional knowledge yep. and um, open source. And open source and information commons, you could say. So part of the studies will also be uh, on the, focused a little bit more on, on uh, legal legal processing and legal documents, like uh, uh, the, Nagoya protocol? Yeah, the Nagoya Protocol, regulating... Uh, the use of traditional knowledge. Mm. Yeah. See? <laughs> And the Sami hold a lot of this traditional knowledge? Um, no. Not, I mean, they hold traditional knowledge, but the, 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 the one that's mostly exploited by, by uh, pharmaceutical companies, for instance, is more, more, maybe more to be found in uh, Latin America or, or tropical regions. Tropical regions, yeah. So, so it's not only about the Samis, that part. It's more of traditional knowledge, indigenous knowledge in, in a wider sense. Okay, okay. So it doesn't really connect to the project up north here in Sweden. Well, it Not does and it doesn't. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Help me out here. I don't understand. <laughs> well, it does in the sense that it's... Still I'm a slow foreigner. <laughs> okay. It, it, it does in the sense that it's, it's, it's all, about, um, all about those resources that are... It's all about how certain resources can or cannot be transformed. To moved property. from the... Yeah. Transformed to property. From common resources to property. Right. And how you regulate that and negotiate around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's mathematically, it's, it's, they're, they're sort of parallel, they're connected. But There's a lot of connections, yeah. 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 What about environmentalists? Are they playing a part in any of this? Of course they yeah. are. I mean, of course, there's a lot of environmental organization that's been involved in the protest movement around the mines in northern Sweden, for instance. Yeah. And that's a really interesting case in the sense that it's, it involves indigenous people, but it also involves quite a lot of protests from local non-indigenous people mm. who are often in quite, quite a lot of conflict with indigenous people. So they're usually not that aligned to each other. And then you have sort of international or, or, national or international environmental movements who are not always seen, or not, not always approved of by local people otherwise. So it's sort of, you have different interests that come together there. Alliances that Alliance. are shifting. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, I've already extracted from Martin a promise to come back into the pod. I hope you will too. I hope the two of you, if you're still talking mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> at the end of the project, or maybe during it, will leap back into the cultural studies yeah. pod. That's if there's still a thing called well, cultural you, studies. You should come and visit at, at, us at... at uh, in, in February or March. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Up north. North March, March is supposed to be a wonderful season in London. It is, actually. Yes. Yeah? What, is there light? Yeah, yeah, it's very light, and you still have the snow, so you get a very intense light. Okay, it's well, not as cold as it, it is a few months earlier. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
How about you guys go there? We talk on YouTube live with lots of <laughs> shots of what's going on behind you and an indication of how much clothing you're both wearing. And then maybe I jump into the River Thames and see where I end up. How'd that be? Sound reasonable? All right, very good. Thanks a lot, guys. That was wonderful. Thank you.